From RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie. Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today, money matters, but also the type of money and where it comes from is probably um, more important. How can a party that can't unite itself unite the nation? We're here in the, the basement of my home, which has turned into a television studio. I'm- I can't tell you what's going to happen. We have a sleepy guy in a basement of a house that the press is giving a free pass to. So, Brian, both you and Joe Biden have a lot in common at the moment. Coming live from not the usual glamour of TV studios, but your own basements. That's right. The basement has been converted to the TV studio (laughs) for for many people, both journalist and politician alike. One thing Joe Biden and I don't have in common, however, Jackie, is that he can charge upwards of five, six, seven thousand dollars for people to do Zoom chats with him. He's had to resort. Yeah, he's resorted to these virtual fundraisers. He brings in celebrity guests in the past. He said Billy Porter, Melissa Etheridge, and they will be joined on these virtual video streamed online Zoom chats. And if you're a donor and you want to pay to get in, you're paying one, two, three thousand dollars, up to five thousand dollars. In one particular event recently, you could go to a how did they describe it as a pre-event VIP clutch, which apparently was this bit at the start of the Joe Biden fundraiser where you could get in first and only a small number of donors would get virtual FaceTime with Joe over Zoom. That would set you back $25,000 to get in on that little fundraiser with Joe Biden. I know, because that's what's happened. So if you imagine years ago, well, not years ago, months ago, the deal was you'd go to a big fundraiser and you'd have bought your dinner for $1,000 a plate or you'd have paid five grand to get into this event. Or something like that with some exactly. expensive materials. You get your dinner. Then at the end, exactly. And then at the end, you get to shake your hands with Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever the candidate is, get your photograph. And that how's, that's how they raise their money. That's how you get a bit of time with your candidate. Maybe make your issues, try to do a bit of lobbying, get your photograph. But that's all gone now. Nobody can meet up face to face anymore. So it's all gone virtual. It's all gone online. And they're really trying to cash in on it as best they can. And this is something Joe Biden and his campaign team are trying to experiment with hosting town halls via Zoom. We're here in uh, the basement of my home, which has turned into a television studio I'm not very familiar with. (laughs) Starting up a podcast, doing Skype calls and Zoom calls with family members and well-known celebrities. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and to be part of this very important discussion. I think you could split 
the Joe Biden online presence, I suppose, into two categories. There is the media push to get as much coverage as he can and to get on TV as much as he can. And then there is the fundraising push, this bid to try to raise as much money as he can. He's behind Donald Trump quite significantly. The latest figures for April actually show that on fundraising, Joe Biden had $57 million cash on hand. Donald Trump had $244 million cash on hand, a big gap there of $187 million. Those figures are a little bit old, though, because there's a time lag. You have to wait a few weeks for the latest figures to come in. Presumably, the Joe Biden money has been increasing. He had a very good march, apparently, where he outraised Donald Trump in funding. It's all gone online now. It's much trickier and it's much more difficult to make that money. But they're certainly trying all the different ways. Then, as I mentioned, there's the other side. There's the media push. There's the trying to get my name out there, trying to get on TV, trying to do as much media as I can from the basement where he is stuck. And, you know, he's doing podcasts. He's doing as many interviews as he can. Some of those interviews get a lot of traction. Some of them don't. But one interview in particular last week, Jackie, got an awful lot of traction. And this was an interview on the morning show on MSNBC called Morning Joe. And this was Joe Biden's first interview about allegations of sexual assault. Would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. So those allegations coming from a woman called Tara Reid. But these allegations, they're not new allegations, Brian, are they? No. So... Originally, you'll recall last year when Joe Biden launched his campaign, a lot of women and of Joe Biden inappropriately contacting people, hugging them from behind, sniffing their hair, rubbing their shoulders. It made women feel very uncomfortable. And a lot of women spoke about how they would put it in the category of inappropriate touching as opposed to sexual assault. Now, at the time, Tara Reid, a former Senate staffer who worked with Joe Biden back in the 1990s, 27 years ago, she was among that group of women who suggested she had been sort of uncomfortably or inappropriately touched by him. But in more recent weeks and months, she has made much more serious allegations that he actually sexually assaulted her 27 years ago. She also claimed that she told people at the time, she told family members, she told friends, and that she filed a complaint with the personnel department in the Senate. Joe Biden hadn't addressed those allegations until that interview that we just heard a clip from there on MSNBC. He is, of course, denying them. He's saying this absolutely never happened. But Jackie, it has been very interesting to see here how quickly the Democrats and people on the Joe Biden side jumped to his defense and immediately believed him as opposed to believing the accuser. Now that we're in, you know, the climate of COVID-19, before you would have had a presidential candidate saying he or she is running for president, raises cash for the campaign and spends it, right? That's not the whole story these days. Being on the campaign trail, out and about, meeting people across states, doing local television interviews, hosting fundraisers, schmoozing away with the big wigs. Now that is gone for the foreseeable and it poses a massive problem for the two men and that is money. A huge part of fueling campaigns is money, dough, the green stuff, whatever you want to call it. So let's go into that for this week's 
refresher. When a presidential campaign is up and running, it can now cost hundreds of millions of dollars to run. The money can come from small donors, individuals, but a donation is limited to $2,800 to a candidate. Or candidates can self-finance, like we've seen Michael Bloomberg do this year, spending over $1 billion on his campaign, showing how big his pockets are, but also that money can't buy you votes. Uh, The main way of getting money uh, is fundraising through large donors, though. Yeah, that's right. But then when you look at the likes of corporations, labour organisations, national banks, they're actually prohibited from making donations. But there is a catch and there's a way around this. There's always a back doorway. Contributions can be made through what's known as a political action committee or a PAC. People probably heard of these before. But they're kind of tricky to explain. So these are organisations often representing an interest group or a corporation, like a big company, a union or a trade association. And these PACs raise money with the goal of supporting or defeating candidates, parties or a piece of legislation that might be up for voting. So therefore it influences elections and policy making. Like individuals, though, there are limits to the amount of money a PAC can donate to a candidate or party in each election, while individuals may only contribute that $2,800 directly to a candidate, as I've mentioned, they can contribute up to $5,000 to a PAC and give to as many PACs as they want. So while PACs are limited in how much they can contribute to a candidate, enter Super PACs, which is a different story altogether. Very different. I'd love a super PAC. I think we should set up a super PAC, Jackie. I think it would uh, get get us lots of, of money. And they didn't exist before 2010. And this was the year that the US Supreme Court ruled that the First Amendment in the US Constitution allows the expenditure of money as a form of free speech. And what did that mean? What were the consequences? Well, this allowed this new type of PAC to emerge, the super PAC, where you can raise and spend as much money as you want on behalf of a candidate of your choice with no limits. This morning, the Supreme Court announced its opinion in Citizens United. This disastrous decision paves the way for free and an unlimited special interest spending in our elections. However, they cannot be coordinated with a candidate, meaning they can't talk or work with the people they're trying to back, but they can fuel and project their message and target an opposing candidate. The big deal here is that they can give those with financial firepower a chance to catapult a candidate into office without breaking the law, meaning massive amounts of money are being pumped into campaigns ever since that decision. Yeah, huge amounts of money. So ever since that 2010 decision allowing super PACs to be set up, there was a fourfold increase in the amount of outside spending in elections. And initially, it largely benefited the conservative movement, the Tea Party. Now, some politicians don't like the idea of super PACs and they try to stay away from them. There's a lot of negative press and a lot of negative publicity about them. Elizabeth Warren, for example, she tried during her primary run this year, but she eventually caved in and got help in her final days. And it does benefit both sides. You can't assume that this is a partisan affair. There aren't a lot of functioning democracies around the world that work this way, where you can basically uh, have millionaires and billionaires bankrolling Uh, whoever they want, however they want, in some cases undisclosed. Uh, And what it means is ordinary Americans are shut out of the process. You know, I had to raise a lot of money for my campaign. 
There, there, there's nobody who operates in politics that has perfectly clean hands on this issue. All of this money goes to campaign teams, food, travel, accommodation, helping volunteers around the country. But the thing is, all of this cash is spent on really is advertisements, usually on television. And that is nothing new. Eisenhower answers America. The Democrats have made mistakes, but aren't their intentions good? Well, if the driver of your school bus runs into a truck, hits a lamppost, drives into a ditch, you don't say his intentions are good. You get a new bus driver. But especially, Brian, our favourite attack ads. How can a party that can't unite itself unite the nation? How can a party that can't keep order in its own backyard hope to keep order in our 50 states? Ah, yes, the attack ad and the emergence of that scary movie trailer voice. You work hard, stretch every penny, but chances are you pay a higher tax rate than him. Mitt Romney made $20 million in 2010, but paid only 14% in taxes, probably less than you. I think you could pull off the voice, Brian, definitely. Two, two things I'm learning from I'm setting up a super pack and I'm going to get a new job doing scary attack ad voices. Excellent. Or T won't realise what potential you had, I'm telling you. Um, before we go into how much these bad boys cost, do they have any influence at all, these ads? How often are they on over there on TV in, in a run up to an, an election? They are on non-stop, Jackie. You cannot avoid them. And I'm particularly reminded of, we, we, we spoke about Michael Bloomberg at the top of this and how he was allowed to spend his own billion dollars on his own campaign. And you really saw that come through in the advertising. Every time you clicked on a YouTube link or a Facebook ad, he was there. Every time you turned on the TV, it was Michael Bloomberg ads, Michael Bloomberg ads bombarding you morning, noon and night in every ad break. But... As we mentioned at the start, mm. money can't buy you love, money can't buy you an election. It didn't work for him. So you do have to question, you know, it's not just about the advertising. There's no denying it has a huge influence and it gets into people's brains. It's like all advertising. It is effective. It can affect people's choices, including choices for when it comes to voting. But it certainly did not work in Michael Bloomberg's case. He, of course, had a disastrous primary campaign mm. and had to pull out quite early on. Well, when we think about the US and Ireland here in Ireland, paid advertisements for political parties, they're forbidden. They're only allowed a small number of party political broadcasts in the run-up to election time. And they're not as usually as dramatic as we, what we just heard. Enough is enough. It's time to get Ireland working. Fine Gael has a five-point plan to do just that. It's eye-watering then when you look at the figures on how much has been spent in the States on political advertising. And those super PACs we were talking about are such a huge part of that. Spending heavily on their own independently produced ads. For example, a super PAC supporting Donald Trump called America First. They recently released television ads in key battleground states against Joe Biden and his criticism of Trump's January move to tighten travel restrictions from China. Joe Biden has defended China for four decades. What a beautiful history we wrote together. To stop China, you have to stop Joe Biden. America First Action is responsible for the contents of this advertising. Those ads are part of their $10 million investment, and that's only through to the end of May, they said. 
Now, what's interesting about the attack ads as well, Jackie, is that they can be extremely controversial. You mentioned there, you know, cutting clips of different sort of news reports or something a candidate said on the campaign trail and then sort of twisting it and contorting it, maybe taking it out of context. And there's a very interesting example this week where CNN had to issue a cease and desist letter to the Trump campaign telling them to stop showing this particular ad. Donald Trump's team had edited a clip of some a CNN presenter, Wolf Blitzer, talking to a correspondent in which it was edited in a way that made it look like CNN were praising Donald Trump's coronavirus efforts. Is it accurate that if these uh, steps had not been put in place, it could have been two million people dead here in the United States? Yes. That's when in actual fact, the presenter and the reporter were talking about stay-at-home orders that had been issued by governors. CNN refused to air the ad and then sent them a lawyer's letter saying, you have to take this ad down because... You are being misleading. This is not what our presenters were talking about. The Trump campaign pushed back very strongly, however, and they said that there's nothing inaccurate in this ad. We are highlighting this editorial bias that you have in CNN. And they actually accused CNN of being like a super PAC for Joe Biden. In terms of the money as well, we were talking a lot about fundraising and get money from small donors, large donors. Sometimes you could be self-funded, but... Politicians in the US like to think of themselves as rock stars too. Absolutely. We were talking at the start about the virtual campaign and the fundraiser and the, you know, the virtual cocktail party where you paid money or that more traditional pay for an event and get FaceTime with the politician. But there's also the old traditional way of selling merchandise. We all know about the T-shirts and the hats and the scarfs and the flags and the various bits and bobs you can buy with your candidate's logo and name emblazoned on them. But I think the Trump campaign have taken that to a whole new level. They have the most bizarre array of merchandise that one can purchase online with Donald Trump logos and Make America Great Again emblazoned across them. You can get Irish-themed pint glasses and whiskey glasses. No stereotype intended there, I'm sure, for $30. Jackie, if you wanted to toast with your friends with your Donald Trump Irish glass. Um, As I say, mugs, T-shirts, bath towels. We also have cufflinks, jigsaw puzzles and dog collars and leads for that pet in the house that you want to be emblazoned with your Trump logo. (laughs) One non-for-profit and non-partisan research group which tracks the effects of money and lobbying on elections and public policy is the Centre for Responsive Politics. Sarah Briner from that organisation joins us now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on States of Mind. We're in an election cycle at the moment in a climate that has never been seen before. One presumptive candidate campaigning from a basement, unable to go anywhere, and the other trying to campaign during an international crisis while probably making headlines for all the wrong reasons recently. What is the state of play at the moment in terms of how COVID-19 has affected campaign fundraising? Is the amount of money along with the speed of fundraising different when compared to other elections? Uh, Yes, it is a very strange time to be running for president. Um, And we unfortunately, it's a little early to tell how much of a hit campaigns will take from uh, the COVID crisis, although it's almost certain that they will um, take a hit. Uh, But it's it's kind of early um, in the game. we also have the problem when looking at past elections that this cycle we had Bernie Sanders running and he is a prolific fundraiser um, and he dropped out of the race around the same time that COVID really started to take hold in the United States. So um, 
it might be hard to disentangle the effect that he had on leaving the, the race uh, from the effect that COVID had. Uh, but certainly, there are so many reasons why we would expect to see um, campaigns at the presidential level struggle to raise funds right now, not the least of which is that uh, somewhere in the realm of 20% of Americans have lost their jobs uh, recently, which means that any disposable income that they might have had to donate to candidates is going to be going towards more immediate needs. Um, and so I think that that will, that will pose problems for the candidates. Uh, what we've seen in terms of their behavior, um, I mean, presidential campaign ads have really just taken you know, just a nosedive and the number of them that we've seen on television and on radio uh, in the last couple of months. And I think it's because they don't want to, um, I, I don't think they think that it's appropriate to be campaigning so vigorously uh, in this time where people are being asked to make major sacrifices uh, for the health of their friends and family. If we look at four years ago in 2016, Trump raised around $650 million. Hillary Clinton, though, her and her super PACs raised a total of $1.2 billion. Does money really matter? It absolutely matters. And that election was anomalous. Uh, by and large, the better funded candidate does win um, elections. Uh, but Trump is kind of a special case. Uh, there was also a fair bit of research that said that he got in the order of billions of dollars in free media, um, but through media outlets covering him uh, around the clock. So uh, I think that, you know, that's a kind of money, um, but certainly he uh, has introduced a lot of um new <laughs> new behaviors and techniques into political fundraising. This cycle, he is outraising his opponent. Uh, he's behaving in much more of a traditional um, fundraising way. Uh, he's not funding his own campaign, for example. Uh, so I think that he, you know, this, this is a return to normalcy in some ways. Um, but absolutely, uh, if you look at all of the down ballot races and all of the races across the states, um, somewhere in the order of 90% of the time, the better funded candidate wins. Just look look at another billionaire other than Donald Trump, Michael Bloomberg. We've spoken about him earlier in this podcast. Good example of someone who self-funded, spent a billion dollars. I live in Washington, D.C. here. We were bombarded with his ads, as I'm sure you were in Chicago, for the weeks leading up to all the Democratic primaries. He was everywhere, but he had a disastrous primary. Is there any analysis done of just... That huge media advertising spend on the TV and the online ads, does it matter? Can it help you win an election? Uh, the political science literature on this is, is conflicted. Um, getting your name and message out there, I think, uh, is something that you obviously need money to do. So money is something that is necessary for a candidate to uh, be successful, but it certainly isn't determinative. Um, and I think that Bloomberg is a classic example <laughs> of uh, the type of candidate who spends a lot of his own money uh, only to crash and burn. Um, he actually f falls in a long line of self-funded candidates who fail um, spectacularly. Uh, that's actually more common for self-funded candidates because one of the things that money uh, is and can show is that a candidate has support from people. But when you're raising, and, and that's different when you're raising money, when you're raising money, that means that individuals are actually giving you something and supporting you. When you're spending your own money, that just means that you're supporting yourself and uh, it doesn't kind of 
demonstrate the connection with uh, voters and constituents that one needs to be successful. So Trump, again, is a is a is a um, famous uh, contradiction to that, uh, since he did win his campaign while largely self-funding. We've been talking on this podcast about PACs and super PACs and limits on donations. What's your own view on the American system? From an outsider, it looks like, yes, it's quite regulated, it's quite strict, but then you look at something like a super PAC where it's kind of a bit of a free-for-all. Do you think more needs to be done to tighten up spending limits and to tighten up funding regulations? I think that more needs to be done um, with regards to enforcing uh, limits and uh, making sure that super PACs don't coordinate with uh campaigns that they support. Uh, those, you know, super PACs are allowed to receive unlimited amounts of money um, from essentially anyone domestic. But the enforcement of that is increasingly weak, um, especially as our oversight um, watchdog organization, the Federal Election Commission, uh, which is tasked with that work, um, itself is uh, understaffed and doesn't have a um, quorum to enforce uh, campaign finance violations. So I think that we definitely need to step up um, our enforcement to make sure that super PACs are not coordinating directly with candidates and that when they receive, you know, a huge donation, it's very clear to the public who that money is coming from. Uh, as for um, limits and and um, tightening up sort of the you know, preventing billions of dollars from or millions of dollars from being donated by individual people. I think uh, that there's, you know, a variety of opinions about that. But in the short term, at least, it's very unlikely that any changes will happen to that uh, regulatory process, because those decisions would need to be made by by the Supreme Court. And the court is probably more um, inclined to hold uh the Citizens United decision as constitutional now than they were when they actually decided it. <laughs> so um, I don't think that we're going to, we expect to see major changes to our regulatory process anytime soon. So all of these contributions to political campaigns, money raised for politicians, it's all monitored by the Federal Election Commission. This means that candidate committees, party committees, PACs, they have to file these periodic reports disclosing the money that they raised and spent. The commission also limits contributions by individuals and bodies. We're going to speak now to Bradley Smith. He's a law professor at Capital University in Ohio, and he's one of the nation's leading authorities on election law, campaign finance. He served on the Federal Election Commission for five years in the early 2000s. Bradley, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Can I kick off, Bradley, by saying it seems when you look at the US system that a lot of limits have been put in place, limiting the amount of money you, an individual, can donate, limiting the rules of PACs and super PACs. Is there enough protections in place, do you think, in your view? Or is the system still vulnerable to too much influence from big money? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I've often pointed out that the uh, Federal Election Commission uh, Code, the Federal Election Campaign Act, and the Code of Regulations are about four times the length of Plato's Republic. And, you know, Plato's Republic, they say, is the father of all modern philosophy, right? So the regulations are complex. They're detailed. You'll sometimes hear people say it's the Wild West. That's totally untrue. It's very, very difficult to comply with these kinds of things. That said, the regulations don't seem to be accomplishing most of what people hope they'll do. In fact, one reason they're so complex 
is that you have loopholes and efforts to to stuff those loopholes and block them off and, and, and more openings. My own view is that the best result actually is that you really can't regulate this sort of activity consistent with both the American system of elections and with the First Amendment that we have in our Constitution, and that the best thing for all concerned would be to simply lift the limits, have disclosure of what's given to campaigns and what they spend their money on, and let the voters make the decision. On this podcast, we've been discussing the PAC, the Political Action Committee, and the Super PAC. The Super PAC grabs a lot of people and sort of says, hang on a minute, you mentioned they're like the back door or they're looking for the loop around. Is the Super PAC a problem? That at the end of the day, you put in all of these restrictions and these limits, but then you invent this thing called the Super PAC and pretty much it's a free-for-all and people can donate whatever they want. Well, it is It is one of the things that I think makes the, uh, the limits untenable. Now, full disclosure here, I was one of the lawyers in the case uh, called speechnow.org versus Federal Election. Election Commission that resulted ultimately in the creation of super PACs. Uh, so I have a vested interest. I think on the whole, super PACs have been good. Uh, they do allow people to spend money. That money has to be spent independently of the campaign. It's not given to a candidate. Super PACs disclose all of their donors. Uh, they disclose all of their expenditures. I should say all. I say all above a de minimis amount of, of $200. So they so they disclose all this activity. And what they do is they allow people to, to speak quickly, to, to respond to changes in, in the race. For example, uh, we had a number of primaries going on, not just for president, but for various local offices and, and state level offices in the United States in March and April, and you have issues come up like COVID-19. That's a totally new issue. Nobody's been talking about that. If you just had a system of limits, it's very hard for anybody to raise the money and start speaking about that issue if they want to speak about it. So one of the pluses you get from super PACs is because they're not subject to limits on contributions they can take or what they can spend, right? They can get into the game very quickly and bring those issues to the attentions of voters. And, And again, in the end, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people don't like money in politics and there's there's concerns about corruption. And these are not illegitimate or, or ill-founded concerns. But in the end, I think that we're probably best served by just letting people spend, let them say what they want, let the voters hear the messages from all these different groups and decide what it is that, that they that they want to to, you know, vote for. In relation to super PACs, to a huge drive for them. Um, and their spending is TV advertisements. And to maybe outside of the United States, a lot of these ads can seem quite dark. After that 2010 Supreme Court decision, do these now super PACs spur hate speech from a judgment that was initially about free speech? Well, uh, let's say first that they they seem very dark to many people in the United States too. (laughs) It's not people outside the United States. Um, You know, ads can be positive or they can be negative. Uh, and, and that's the, the sort of reality that you have. Negative ads are, are intended to divide, to drive up an opponent's negative ratings, to convince people not to vote at all in some cases. Positive ads are intended to do uh, you know, most of the opposite. Um, I'm very hesitant to give the, the government the power to start saying, you know, which ads are too negative or to say that you shouldn't run negative ads. For example, one thing we know from research is that negative ads tend to uh, be more favorable to challengers, right? Incumbents don't want negative ads because they've got a record to shoot at. And, and so they don't want people saying bad things about their record. And given all the advantages of incumbency, um, you know, without negative ads, it's very, very difficult to beat an incumbent. So, you know, again, I, I think that the concerns about negative ads are not illegitimate, but 
I, I'm very leery of giving the government the power to regulate that. And I would note that if you look at the coverage in newspapers, for example, it is also, at least in the United States, almost relentlessly negative. Uh, and so, you know, I think negativity is part of the game. And the fact is people respond to negativity. And until we decide that, that we're not going to do that, that we're going to pay more attention to, to positive messages, I'm not sure there's, there's too much you can do about it. In other words, to shorten this all up, I think super PACs and their negative messages merely reflect, in a sense, what the public is responding to and what the public's re, or what the public's own attitude is uh, toward candidates and and how they want to look at politics these days. Bradley, how do you think the COVID nineteen pandemic, in particular, is going to influence all of this campaign fundraising? Are there elements there that we don't know about yet, which could pose problems, especially in this era of a pandemic? Yeah, this will be very interesting. There's, of course, a lot of cross currents. I mean, it's very hard to start isolating, right, cause and effect. There, there's, you know, the fact that a lot of people are very uh, uh, excited about the idea of either keeping Trump in office or getting Trump out of office, and that'll make a difference in how much they donate and so on. But but in terms of COVID-19, uh, there's a couple of things. One is, for example, you see amongst wealthy donors, they've taken a big hit in the, in their portfolio, so to speak. And they may we may look at them and say, wow, that guy's really rich. But he's not sitting there today feeling really rich. He's sitting there today feeling he's 30% poorer than he was at the start of the year, and that his uh, a lot of his uh, money is not liquid. He, he can't get it. So we might see actually a decline in spending, especially in this kind of large donations that fuel super PAC spending. Um, the other thing is that it will make it harder to do the uh, big dinners, you know, and these are big dinners, whether they're relatively, you know, county dinners, you know, in counties in the United States that are $50 a plate, or whether they're big fancy dinners for the top presidential candidates at $1,000 a plate or $2,000 a plate, they'll all be tougher to do. Uh, and that may also depress fundraising. What you'll see is, of course, more emphasis on online fundraising. And there, the Democrats have traditionally over the last decade had a pretty substantial advantage over Republicans. So I think it, it's not uh, at all unlikely that we'll see COVID-19 uh, gives the Democrats a, a fairly significant and probably one-time uh, edge in, in uh, financing for campaigns this year. Leo Varadkar, he's not the only politician at the moment that seems to be fond of a bit of Seamus Heaney during this time. Absolutely. Joe Biden is a big Seamus Heaney fan, and it's something that he has uh, referenced in his various From the Basement video online clips that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Pop, what are you reading? Nana's making fun of me because I'm reading Irish poetry. Yeah. What are you reading, Finnegan? Oh, funny you ask. I think her name is Sally Rooney. Yeah. Sally Rooney, Normal People? I'm almost finished with Normal People, but it's so good. I love it. Oh, good. Final question. Who is your favorite (laughs) grandchild? (laughs) Yeah, Sally Rooney's Normal People, which seems to be catching everyone's attention at the moment and sparking a national debate anyways here in Ireland, Brian. Yeah, sure. I'll chat to you next week and have a good week. Thanks, Jackie. And next week we will have details of our States of Mind super pack and also how you can purchase your own States of Mind dog collar and leash no, no, Brian, for you, that special <laughs> pet in your life. You have to do it in the voice. You forgot the voice. <laughs> no way. That would be uh, that would that would be giving away my craft for free, Jackie. I, I have to charge a, free, a fee for my scary uh, attack ad If voice. you're good at something, never do it for free. Chat, <laughs> chat to you next week, Brian. Chat to you next week. Bye-bye.